3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners. Hope you're having a lovely morning. I'm Claudia and I'll be your host for the show today. Thanks for tuning in. It's Wednesday 22nd of February and we've got a huge agenda ready to entertain and inform you this morning. But first I wanted to say a big thank you to our listeners who reached out with support last week uh, for our subscriber drive. It's so great to see the new subscriptions coming in and as well our existing subscribers continuing to support us, renewing their subscriptions. If you'd like to become a subscriber and you haven't done so, uh, you can still head to our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. That's 94198377. So, uh, yeah, all those lines and uh, functions are open, waiting for you to join the community. So it's just me in the studio today, but we have so much to offer you. First up, we're going to bring our segment on the media coverage of Alice Springs Mabantwa. Promised from last week, we've got that one all ready for you to start the show this morning. So we'll be hearing from Evan Wallace, who is a former 3CR radio presenter and journalist working in Mabantwa, Alice Springs, who will talk about the messaging projected in some of the recent media reporting on the town, as well as his experience as a journalist working on the ground during the recent period of crisis reporting. Then we meet the co-producers of Mother. Now that's spelt M, capital M, forward slash capital O, T-H-E-R. So this isn't an ordinary mother program. This is a program of conversations about the experiences and stereotyping associated with mothering, motherhood and not mothering. It's going to be taking place at the Wheeler Centre in the first weekend of March. So we will have Beck Kavanagh and Jamila Kojar from the Wheeler Centre joining us in the studio at around 7.30 to tell us more about that. And then we will have a continuation of Grace's mini-series on international students in Australia. And she's going to take us into uh, the experiences of queer international students. That'll be coming up at about 10 to 8. And then to round off the show, we'll have Turkish-Australian essayist and researcher Edda Gunaydin who will be talking about Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance, 
which has just won the non-fiction prize at the recent Victorian Premier's Literature Awards. So very excited to have a chat with Edda. So, so much on. Stay with us. And when we come back, we'll be heading straight into our chat with Evan Wallace about reporting on Alice Springs. RECR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 94198377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Over the past two months, there's been something of a media frenzy whirling around the town of Mabantua, so-called Alice Springs. Images of flashing lights, roaming youth on pitch-dark nights, uniformed police and alcohol have told a story of crisis, fear and despair. Seemingly overnight... Alice Springs became a place reduced to violence and instability, according to sections of the media. I began to worry that the people of Alice Springs, especially the youth, would become stereotyped as bad, like the South Sudanese young of Melbourne, who was scarred as a result of poor knee-jerk reporting of intermittent violence a few years back. Recently, more nuanced reports about Alice Springs have appeared, showing the complexity of the deep issues at hand, stories that go beyond the alcohol-crime binary and paint a more balanced picture of the community. I wonder if they come too late and whether the earlier crime crisis reporting has coloured mainstream Australia's view of the place indelibly. Our next guest is Evan Wallace, a journalist working on the ground in Mabantua, Alice Springs, reporting on everyday events. Evan's actually a former 3CR breakfast presenter, and so I reached out to him to hear his perspective of recent media reports of Mabantua and his experience of being a reporter himself. Oh, Claudia, it's so exciting to be reconnecting with 3CR. So many happy and fond memories from times there. I'm Evan Wallace, and I'm a producer for the ABC, and I work at out of the Alice Springs office or a little station here, but it covers quite a big patch of Australia, all the way from the South Australian border at Yulara, Uluru, uh, going up to uh, Tennant Creek and further on to Elliot. So it's a big patch, uh, but we do our best as a, a small team covering all of the key stories that are making news in Central Australia and the Barclay. Sounds uh, like a big region. When did you move to Alice Springs? July last year. So this is month number eight. Wow. And what's it been like since you've been there? It's been an interesting period of time. I, didn't, I couldn't quite work out which word I was going to use there. There are so many different adjectives that I could actually use to describe my time in Alice Springs and ended up just being a jumble of many. So in so many senses from a pure 
being in a place where there are significant developments, where there is news breaking, where there are fascinating stories from a uh, journalist's perspective, it's an incredible experience. From a personal experience, it's quite challenging uh, to be in Mbantua Alice Springs. There's a great sense of sadness that defines life for so many people who call Alice Springs and Central Australia home. It's a great div- level of division, economic inequality uh, that's very visible uh, and that's uh, very, very challenging to reconcile the joy and excitement that you get from day in and day out of reporting in Alice Springs and Central Australia and having all of the opportunities uh, that are here as a very privileged white person and yet uh, knowing that that's a different world to about half of the community or half of the population that also calls Central Australia home. So uh, now being able to look back on, on a stretch of time can definitely say mixed feelings attached to being in, in Alice Springs, but fundamentally still a, a positive experience um, personally and professionally. There's uh, a lot to lot to be able to appreciate for sure. So we're here to talk about the way in which the media have been reporting on Alice Springs this year, the last couple of months. It's been fairly explosive. What have your observations been? The way that the media has covered how Alice Springs is tracking as a community and then subsequently what the response should be is one that has definitely been caught up in a lot of different debates. The issues and the challenges that are facing Alice Springs and Central Australia, politicians on both sides of the political spectrum and all commentators will tell you that the issues relating to poverty, relating to alcohol abuse, relating to unemployment, um, relating to domestic violence, they're so systemic and they have been created through years and years of choices, decisions, governments, legacy of colonialism, dispossession. And then having such significant attention that's all of a sudden being played to and being placed on Alice Springs when so many of the great challenges and issues had their roots not necessarily in decades, but also centuries. It's yeah, it's befuddling at times, uh, seeing how how we've reported and thought of the issues in Alice Springs. Um, I think that a lot of it's been attached to the debate that's connected to uh, the referendum that we'll have this year on the voice to parliament. And subsequently, there's been a lot of conflation that's occurred with Central Australia and Alice Springs being thought of almost as some sort of uh, substitute for Indigenous Australia. And that in itself is not a helpful way of reporting on the really pertinent issues uh, that A, need to be addressed when unpacking conversations and debates relating to the voice, but also um, definitely confuses the focus when thinking about how to really best report on uh, these long-standing challenges and concerns that, uh, that do exist within Alice Springs, Central Australia. So what are the dominant messages that you feel Australians reading the news and consuming the news have received about Alice Springs in this last spate of there's reporting? Been, there's been a pretty consistent message of Alice Springs as a town that's in collapse 
there where there's a sense of lawlessness and there is a sense of hopelessness and helplessness that exists. If I was reading and watching and responding to how the media has covered what's unfolding right now uh, within Alice Springs, that would be a message that I would pick up on. I know that personally I've had a lot of friends and family who have contacted me and said, hey, Evan, how are you going? It sounds as though it's absolutely horrible there. And it is important to acknowledge that levels of crime in Alice Springs are horrible. When reflecting on domestic violence rates, when thinking about assault rates, it's, hor- it's horrid. Uh, alcohol-related presentations at emergency departments, shocking. These are statistics and figures and real lives that are, show that the town and community members are feeling a lot of pain, huge amount of pain. Um, and that is inherently sad and people should be shocked by that. One of the biggest challenges, though, Claudia, is that these statistics, while they have definitely spiked, whatever baseline existed here in Central Australia was never acceptable beforehand, and and people should have been just as shocked before any media attention in recent times. So what are your concerns with the way in which uh, the situation is being projected in the media? Well, at this moment, thinking about coverage of Alice Springs, I mean, I work for a small outlet of the ABC that does an incredible job of being able to um, talk to people from all parts of the community. And that's something that we pride ourselves on so much is having conversations with um, different Aboriginal elders, talking with members of the political community on both sides of the political aisle. Um, And there are a lot of media outlets that are trying to have similar conversations with a broad range of individuals. What's occurred, though, I really think at the the start of the year is coming back to um, the voice debate is that we had a a slow media few weeks, the end of January, and the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, came to always, came to attaching and associating the situation in Alice Springs with his scepticism that he's enunciated publicly about uh, the referendum and the proposal to have a voice to parliament. And then from there, that scepticism has then been channeled and then also responded to, reflected through uh, reporting within uh, various tabloid papers in Australia, various News Corp-owned Uh, publications and it just had a situation where there was an echo chamber uh, where you had front pages here in the northern territory that would say lines along the way of get elbow to the northern territory and we need you know to address this crisis right now and big capitals and there was a similar message that was also being projected outside of the northern territory so in many senses you could argue that this is an example of the media trying to make a, uh, or some aspects of the media that is, trying to make the story bigger than than what it is, turning into something that would have coverage in our twenty four news cycle, twenty four hour news cycle, because it is fascinating that here we are, about two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks now since Anthony Albanese visited Alice Springs, that uh, we're two weeks since um. Uh, alcohol restrictions were reinstated uh, within the Northern Territory. 
and that attention has quieted down. But still, we know across the territory, those crime rates that we're referring to, they're still horrible. The situation um, that's experienced by so many members of uh, the First Nations community in Northern Territory, those realities remain the same, but the media attention disappears, which suggests that uh, it was a perfect storm for how aspects and elements of the media reported on and covered what's unfolded within uh, Central Australia uh, in, in recent weeks and recent months that, um, yeah, an opportunity was there and it was taken and it did make for very engaging reading, but for someone not based in Central Australia, potentially reading with uh, a lack of context. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We've been hearing from former 3CR Breakfast presenter Evan Wallace, who now works as a radio journalist in Alice Springs. Evan has been sharing his perspective on the surge in media reporting about the town over the January-February period. Evan believes the skewed reporting coming out of some media camps was a product of poor timing, partly as a result of debates around the referendum on a voice to Parliament ramping up. This political heat put pressure on the Prime Minister to visit Alice Springs and be seen to be doing something, thus causing what was a continuation of an existing set of problems to gain extra attention. I wanted to talk more about this with Evan, but I was also curious to hear his view on the challenges faced by journalists tasked with reporting on such complex and sensitive community matters as those experienced in Alice Springs. Here's what he said. One of the greatest challenges I think reporters face is finding that time and energy to ensure that your knowledge of background, of historical information, of the complexities is that you can that you can just find the time to immerse yourself in that detail, to reflect on legacy policy decisions and key moments in history that have led to, to where we are now. The imperative always as a journalist is to tell an accurate and balanced story that's informative and that keeps people up to speed with, brings people up to speed, I should say, with what's happening around a particular event uh, or within a particular place. Um, But when there is so much happening and there's so many moving parts, it can often be a, a real squeeze is finding that time to really step back and reflect on how and and why a situation has emerged. I think the best journalists do an excellent job at doing that, but it is always the squeeze when you are working in an environment where you need to keep public informed of what's emerging, that you need to be reporting on regular, regularly and on multiple platforms that yes, that to really give yourself that time to uh, expand your understanding of an issue, that's going to be tricky thing to prioritise and you're really having to squeeze it into an already very squeezed day. Yeah, and as a result, it can become a bit myopic. Well, I wouldn't use myopic, but I would talk about it becomes reactive and responsive. And Mm. so good journalism, it's going to be responsive um, and you have an environment where you work as well as you can with the information and facts that are before you and you still do your absolute fundamentals when it comes to fact checking who what when how why um and so that's absolutely acceptable journalism 
but is it the um but are you able to critique or reflect on how and why you're reporting in a certain way always probably not often uh when you're having when that emphasis is on responsiveness i suppose where responsiveness turns into poor journalism though is when it's just reactive when you're not fact checking what's before you when there isn't that any form of screening uh and when you're not taking uh when you're just wanting to get a story out there at all costs and to uh, have that told to the greatest one of the widest possible audience and potentially um, highlighting aspects that you believe will be of, of interest to an audience, but may indeed skew the heart of what the issue is. You mentioned that uh, in the couple of weeks since Albanese visited Alice Springs that and the new alcohol restrictions have been brought in, that some of the heat's gone out of the reporting. Are you also noticing... Um, a more nuanced approach to the reporting. It feels now we're sort of seeing some pieces that are looking more deeply into the bigger picture and questioning things a little bit more. I'd suggest that a number of those pieces would have been commissioned over the last number of weeks that uh, individuals working in longer form journalism would have had that opportunity to spend that time uh, understanding and building their awareness and having a wide range of conversations. And that's what's now emerging, particularly as there's no new policy announcements to have to report on. I'd also suggest that national media interest in Alice Springs has also decreased significantly. Um, there, are, there was an influx of different national journos who were here in Alice Springs over the last number of weeks looking and trying to you know, be part of what was a major national conversation. So, yes, I think you're right. I think there's some more nuance there and that's uh, as a result of people having spent some time here in recent weeks, built some understanding, had you know, some great reflections shared with them and being able to then put that on paper uh, to broadcast that, to film that, uh, but whether uh, or not there's going to be an ongoing interest in Alice Springs, I, I doubt it. The people who have been here a lot longer than me will refer to peaks and troughs when it comes to interest in the centre that uh, will probably end that pattern. There's no reason why that pattern won't continue. That Alice Springs, like uh, many other uh, parts of regional or remote Australia, uh, the interest and the attention will vanquish within weeks, I would suggest. Which is uh, disappointing. Um, it needs to continue, but in a constructive way. I absolutely agree. And that's always your great hope when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to Australian media widely, that you really want to have those uh, informed, constructive, nuanced conversations and that reporting that's there. And if that did emerge from, with respect to Alice Springs, then it would be great, but it would also uh, be a significant shift broadly then within how media uh, operates and works within an Australian context if that's prioritised and emphasised um, the more considered pieces, the feature reports, the long format journalism. There's just a basic reality that... Um, people now want to know what's happening immediately before them in real time. And uh, that's that will frame uh, 
where and how resources around where where and how journalists work those resources uh, that'll uh, that'll frame that for sure you're listening to 3CR Wednesday breakfast we've been hearing from former 3CR presenter Evan Wallace now a radio journalist in Mabantua Alice Springs Evan is currently working for the ABC and while it's a small outfit in Alice it still operates as part of a national media machine Evan mentioned that many of the journalists from big media who were flown into the town just to report on the so-called crisis have now left as the spotlight withers. This made me think about the differences between big and small media and whether organisations with less can sometimes provide more. I just wanted to shift now to talk about the role of local newspapers and community outlets, uh, including community radio, in terms of the way they approach telling stories and what they bring to the table as a contrast to, for example, a national network that might fly in someone to cover a particular story. I was just having a skim through a couple of the local Alice newspapers today and just noticing that the top stories weren't about this so-called crisis. Um, there was one about flood mitigation, uh, another one about children searching for bush tomatoes as part of a, a cultural pr- program in uh, an on-country uh, school. There was mention of some of the the, the issues that have uh, we've talked about today, but it wasn't dominating and there was so much more happening, which I found really interesting. Oh, no question. And someone who used to work for a local newspaper and who has been really immersed and connected to different community media organisations over the years, um, I think that in answering your question, the role that community media plays and organisations such as 3CR also local newspapers as well too that you referred to is essential. People really want a be able to tap into different conversations, to have alternative perspectives, to be able to see really excellent grassroots initiatives, things that are being led from the community up. So you talked about uh, really fascinating flood mitigation initiatives or looking at um, local horticultural approaches. And that's, that's really so critical that uh, those stories are shared and that there's a format and that there's a place where people can learn about what is occurring and emerging within the world immediate world around them and it can inspire people to go on to uh, think about things that may actually contribute and support that community in turn uh, i think also too uh, to be able to have a, a rich debate of um multiple perspectives that isn't just limited to those that you'll hear on the major broadcasters. It's critical in terms of idea development, uh, in terms of trying to think about who's being left out. Uh, can really they, they play such a, an essential role in widening the conversation and also reflecting a much uh, greater portion of the community. And I guess um, responding to your comment about the sort of fly-in, fly-out approach, there's a constancy that local media outlets bring to whatever they're talking about. They're, you know, like the grassroots advocates, the not-for-profit support organisations are sort of 
continuously dedicated to um, dealing with whatever their uh, agenda is. They're the cheerleaders and champions for those communities as well too. Uh, That community media will take all sorts of different forms and local media the same. They may be more politically oriented or they may be more about um, being a a news bulletin uh, for events and, and activities. But regardless of what the gears are, they are still, as you say, there. They're willing people on. They're showcasing really special stuff that will never get acknowledged um, on uh, the big screen uh, or you know across uh, across the pa- you know, major national or state papers, and that is just critical that uh, um, that they're there to play that role because people lose that option of seeing their own immediate community reflected to them. Think and can actually contribute to individuals feeling that what they're doing isn't something that's valued or, or recognized. So, just to be able to spur people on to encourage individuals to show that there is huge worthiness and merit in often the most, and often what can be the most small scale activities, that's, that's invaluable. And that's uh, something which all you you know which you just want to uh last as long as you can and and hopefully actually thinking of it another way even strengthen if that's at all possible here in alice springs uh we've lost our local newspaper so the main news that comes through uh is through the nt news it used to be the centralian advocate uh that would uh, play a, a significant role yes there's an online website that you're talking about but it's reports quite sporadically on what is occurring in the community but there is news and reports that local newspaper will be returning to Alice Springs, which would be incredible uh, for that to occur because we live in an environment of such fleeting moments that when you have something hard and physical uh, that's capturing what's there and what's there within the community, it doesn't matter where and how you stumble across it. It's that magical moment of the newspaper being there in the cafe or there on someone's table where all of a sudden you can learn so much incidentally that that knowledge and that news can really enrich a network of, of people's lives just through an awareness that something's on and something's happening or that something's different. And uh, yeah, I just want to see more of that across Australia is um, backing and support and assistance for both um, local community media such as 3CR but also to uh, local media more widely as well at that, at that, at that town-based level in regional and remote Australia. That's, uh, that's all I hope for when thinking about uh, how people can stay across the news that they've got those multiple tiers that they can connect in with. Mm, absolutely. And uh, the picture becomes diverse and it becomes multifaceted and that's what being informed is all about, isn't it? Hearing a range of stories, hearing as many perspectives as you possibly can and then evaluating where you sit on something. 
you're actually coinciding with our subscriber drive this week at 3CR. So I just wanted to put out there as we're discussing the value of independent media that our station doesn't take advertising and therefore we don't have a revenue source from advertisers and we rely on our subscribers and our donations to actually do the work that we do to keep the outfit going. What would you say to our listeners who might not already be subscribers about the importance of supporting that so that we can actually keep keep going? Become a subscriber to 3CR because you are making an incredible decision to support an organization that really celebrates grassroots initiatives, that champions people from all different walks of life. That's one of the things that I admire the most about 3CR, the diversity of voices that are profiled, that not only are profiled, but actually can drive and shape and create media, whether it's people with disability, whether it's First Nations people, whether it's um, LGBTIQA plus individuals. It is such a important platform for being able to share the experiences and also for allowing individuals from those diverse backgrounds to uh, share their own experiences of uh, in a in a public public space. It's, it's it's wonderful. It's brilliant. And I think also too, as I was referring to earlier, just the richness that community media organisations and, and in particular three CR plays in terms of providing a, a greater level of depth and richness to current affairs conversations it's huge you know you're supporting volunteers who put in an immense amount of work an immense amount of effort to uh, really locate and find stories that you won't see in other places uh, and to be able to have conversations and debates that do so often go missing so come a subscriber and you are adding to the diversity and also uh, richness of what makes being in a community great. Well, thank you so much. That sounds like a great note to leave it on. Really appreciate your time uh, talking to us and bringing us your perspective on what it's like in the community that you're working in. And uh, we wish you all the best for the rest of your journey in Alice Springs and we'll look forward to good reporting from you. Thanks, Claudia. Appreciate it. And that was journalist Evan Wallace speaking about the way the media has been reporting on recent events in Mabantwa, Alice Springs, and the role of local and community media in bringing an independent and often unique lens to deep issues affecting communities. If listening to this has made you think about the value of a small independent media organisation like 3CR, it's not too late to become a subscriber. And you can renew or take out a subscription to 3CR by heading to www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or calling the station on 94198377. Hi, I'm Eric Bibb and you're listening to 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. You're back on Wednesday breakfast, 855am and I'm Claudia, your host this morning. Next up... We're going to hear, <coughs> excuse me, 
from two women who are the producers of an upcoming series of conversations titled Mother. The series kicks off at the Wheeler Centre on March 3rd and is touted as being a weekend of fearless conversation about the ways motherhood is experienced, portrayed and labelled. It's an opportunity for people to find community and connection, but also to ask the hard questions and tell the hard stories. What does it mean to be a mother, want to be one, or have no interest in being one? Here to answer some of these questions and tell us about the event are co-producers Jamila Koja and Beck Kavanagh from the Wheeler Centre. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you so much for coming in. It's wonderful to have guests in our studio. So the agenda for this program mm. is huge and complex and very exciting. Uh, before I ask you to share what's on the agenda, could we step back in time and hear about what it was for each of you that created the urge for a series like this? What sort of conversations were you having that germinated this event? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we started working together, Beck and I, at the Wheeler Centre um, and found that kind of instant connection that mums can make. You know, you, you become really fast friends when you're talking about shared motherhood experience, even though we're sort of eight years apart in our motherhood experience. Um, and these conversations became a real lifeline for both of us, I think. And we started to, you know, wonder whether there were women that we knew and women that we didn't know who would be in our audience at the Wheeler Centre that would be interested in, in hearing more and having their own experiences centred on the Wheeler Centre stage. Um, and it kind of grew from there pretty rapidly. <laughs> yeah, sort of, it felt like it bubbled over, didn't it? Like it felt like we'd done a couple of events at the Wheeler Centre around motherhood and they'd been really well received and you know, it just felt like it got to this boiling point where we had to make it bigger and make a bigger space for it. And from there, it happened quite organically. And Beck, I've read that you've said one of the things that you've felt as a, a mother is that constant pull towards the ideal, an ideal which keeps on shifting and constantly being faces, faced with standards of perfection that you feel are impossible to meet and then just leave you feeling kind of guilty and exhausted. Mm. Is that another driver in this for you to sort of reach out to yeah. unravel some of those ideals and make sense of the pressures? Yeah, look, it is. I very much wanted to make sure that, I mean, both of us did, wanted to make sure that we brought conversations around the abject and the uncomfortable experiences of motherhood, um, as well as the joys, because I do think that there is this pressure to if not be the ideal mother to at least seem like you have it all together, you know, like rock up at work and have it together even if you haven't slept, for example, or, um, you know, when you're parenting, not be answering emails. So it's like this constant kind of pressure from all sides. And I guess we wanted to make a space for conversations that sort of normalised all of these experiences and made all of the people coming along feel that breath of relief of going, oh, I'm not the only one you know, sort of shatter the illusion of the ideal in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So what sort of sessions are you going to be having in the program? We have so many. <laughs> um, so we've sort of 
tried to program as, as much of a breadth of experience as possible. We only have three days, so we, we definitely can't cover everything. Um, but we're really interested in looking at the structural questions about motherhood in this country. So, you know, whether to even have a child, you know, women are constantly asking themselves that question now, whether it's practical, whether it's safe, whether it's, you know, a good option. Um, and then questions around maternal health, perinatal mental health, um, creativity in motherhood. We've got a beautiful panel um, with Esther Freud, who's an international writer, uh, Tando, and some other incredible creatives um, about that push and pull between motherhood and creativity. Um, and then we've got some other beautiful internationals. Rachel Yoda, who's the author of the incredible novel Night Bitch, um, will be appearing, as well as Dr. Pragya Agarwal, who's uh, a British Indian behavioural scientist. So we're really excited about her as well. And the title of the program is Mother, spelt capital M forward slash capital O T H E R. Mm. Can you tell us about the title and what inferences and invitations it contains? Yeah, look, we grappled with the title a lot. Um, the One of our guests that Jamila just mentioned, Dr. Pragya Agarwal, uh, has a new book out called Motherhood and the M in that book is bracketed. Um, and so we were toying with this idea of like separating out the M. We also explored titles like, um, I guess, that are more general um, and point towards it being a space that speaks to all experiences of parenthood but in the same way that we didn't want to make it solely about motherhood we also didn't want to flatten it out in such a way that the unique challenges and experiences felt like felt by sorry people labeled as mothers in our society um, were erased or flattened into this sort of generalization. So we wanted to find a title that would straddle both and this is what we landed on. Yeah, definitely. Because it feels like whether you are a mother, want to be one or don't have children, can't have children, have your children taken away in cases uh, that we do unfortunately hear about. Um, that there is othering that can be experienced at different levels mm -hmm. by everyone um, because even being a mother can feel you can feel excluded from mm -hmm. a lot of things and you know it's such an intense role that there are so many aspects of life that you stop participating in simply because you don't have time or it's too hard because you've got to take a, a child mm -hmm. with you um, and even if you're able to do things, I saw this mother the other day while I was thinking about this interview, I was driving along past MSAC in Albert Park and she had a, a baby strapped to her front in a sling. On her back, she had a sack and it was like a netted sack, like a, as big as a Santa sack and it sort of went right down half her back her whole back, filled with basketballs, equipment, uniforms. You could just see it bulging out. And in front of her, she had these little six-year-old sort of twins who were like gambling ahead in the, you know, in the uniforms. And I just thought, and it was quite hot, and she was sort of like walking, and there's this sort of like quite long walk in from where she was parking. And I just thought, yeah, that's what it looks like. And what is she feeling right now? And 
that's got to feel hard and even those sorts of experiences can make you feel quite isolated sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's such a that's such a true point. You see these mothers all the time that are just handling it and they become so many different people at different times but it can be a really isolating experience and it can feel like mothering happens in this bizarre vacuum where you're really separated from the rest of the world and you're not allowed to present that difficulty to people because um, motherhood is supposed to be you know a natural experience that women are good at so I think with mother we really wanted to make sure that um mothers feel comfortable coming into the space and they feel able to bring their children if they need to. Um, Lots of the sessions will be live streamed as well. So if it is one of those days where you just can't leave the house, um, that's okay. And and you can watch the session online later. Um, But in the space itself, we're going to make sure that we have those uh, additional things that make it okay to bring children into the space, you know, a, a dedicated space for them to sort of move around. And if the children make noise in the conversation, that's okay. And we don't want any mothers to have that horrible, hot feeling that you get where your child starts to make noise in a public space Anxiety. and you think, I've got to run away. <laughs> um, you know, all of that is welcome. And there will be panelists who are very new mothers. Um, and have their babies with them. So I think we're, we're trying to bring all of those facets of experience into the one place and say it's okay to be a mother and be interested in other things and they can exist together. And, I mean, in addition to that, as much as, you know, motherhood is a very weird time in that <clears throat> it excludes you from quite a lot, but it also invites you into this kind of beautiful community like 3CR, um, <laughs> of mothers, but, you know, so there's this real, like, grassroots vibe to it. Um, but on the other hand, like, it's very exclusive based around uh, gender and binary ideals and heteronormative standards, and that's something that we were very committed to exploring as well. And a number of our panel, number of our panellists identify as non-binary or in queer relationships, um, and we've got a beautiful digital soapbox um, session, which is one of our online-only sessions, um, presented by Ros Bellamy, who speaks specifically to this issue of, you know, being non-binary, but also identifying as a new mum and the sort of tension between that. Yeah, I wanted to come to those uh, ways that you've broadened your program. You've said that this program will speak to those who are mothers and have been mothers like yourselves, uh, but also to those who wish they were mothers, do not identify as mothers, cannot mother and do not want to mother. Given your own positionality as women who identify as mothers and do have children, I was interested in, in how you approached creating a program that spoke to experiences and values and cultures that are completely different to your own. Mm. I think Every motherhood experience, while it can be sort of lumped together under this this banner, that's what we wanted to complicate. They are so unique, each of those experiences. And so from the very beginning, we were aware that, you know, however Beck or I have experienced motherhood is not likely how, you know, much of our audience have experienced it or the desire to be a mother or not to. Um, so I think it was, you know, a lot of it was reading and um sort of content and and artists that we are already aware of and engaged with in our personal lives and um, people like Gina Rushton who wrote that incredible book 
the most important job in the world about, you know, whether it is a good idea to have a child or not. Um, or Madison Griffiths, who speaks about reproductive justice um, and will do one of our Soapbox series. Um, and I think one of the important things was to portray the really difficult realities about motherhood as well and that it isn't for everybody, but the questions of motherhood are important to society as a whole. And so whether or not you um, wish to be a mother or, you know, have a good relationship with your own mother, I think it, it's a question that affects everyone. And so we had that incredible luxury of being able to go as broad as possible um, when putting the program together. Yeah, I was lucky enough to go to the development of a new performance artwork on the weekend um, and a friend of mine who is working on that, uh, who isn't a mother, was talking about, you know, her concerns about how developing a performance piece around motherhood would be perceived by people who experience motherhood. And I guess it just really um, rammed home this idea that, um, you know, as much as it feels kind of nice to be welcomed into this community of mothers, um, it also sort of separates you off from the people in your lives who perhaps then don't feel that they have uh, the right or the language or the means to support you or engage with you in that experience. And I guess, you know, one of the intentions of Mother is to broaden out that community and to welcome all of these experiences in um, so that it is a space where, yes, mothers and birthing parents and parents feel supported and seen, but also that everybody feels welcome and significant to these conversations. Yes, um, we don't have too much more time and I have many more questions. Mm -hmm. So which one will I ask you? I had a question about the series also wanting to cast a critical eye on the systems and stereotypes that are broken in this country. Um, you've spoken to that. I guess one of those that doesn't seem to have been mentioned, we've got capital M for mother, capital P for patriarchy. Is that part of, I mean, yeah, fathers, other carers, are they all in this as well or not? I think the audience is, we, you know, we envisage the audience as being anyone that is, is touched by motherhood. So, you know, parents, carers, fathers fall under that category, absolutely. Um, and I, I think the the sort of patriarchal structure that motherhood has to exist within at the moment is always centre of mind for so many of us because it is so restrictive. Um, but I think, just sort of speak to Beck's point earlier, that we wanted mothers to not feel that their experience needs to be tied to anyone else's or um, sort of to sort of speak to the experience of fathers or um, male figures necessarily. Uh, I think there isn't a lot of room for mothers to say this is who we are, this is how we experience life in all of its messy, you know, glory. Um, and there is room for, for all of those conversations and I think we have three days to really let these mothers know that the space is open to them and um, we hope that all the fathers and, and, and parental figures will come along as well. Um, yeah. Very exciting. Um, yeah, it sounds like a, an awesome program. So thank you both for coming in this thank morning um, and sharing 
a little bit of what's going to come in that series and, yeah, encourage our listeners to get out there and book a ticket, uh, wheelercentre.com forward slash event series forward slash mother and that's kicking off march the third friday through to sunday march the fifth thank you thank you thank you commons conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism learning in movements radical history and more Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash actingup. Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Monday, February 27 to Friday, March 10, Uruk is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter. And you're back on Wednesday breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM on the dial. We're now going to go to a segment uh, from Grace, giving us uh, further insight into the experience of international students in uh, Melbourne. So I'll let her speak to you. Hi, everyone. It's Grace. I'm bringing in another special on international students from Curing the Air with Jacob. They spoke with PhD student Hao Zheng about her latest paper on the experiences of queer international students during COVID lockdown and finding community in Narn. Um, but first, I'd love to know a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. So you're an international student at Deakin University. Um, where are you from originally and, and what are you studying now? So I'm originally from China. I'm a Chinese queer female researcher in now Melbourne. Um, so um I'm in sociology, but I'm more specialized in queer studies and youth studies and also mobility studies. I know it's a long list, but (laughs) I try to cover them all. Um, So I'm doing my PhD now. Uh, My PhD is about Chinese queer female female international students, queer and adult identity making in Australia. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm keen to pick your brain, but tell me a bit about what um, LGBT rights are in China and, and what your experience was like growing up there? I left home um, at the age of 17, so it was kind of late like late adolescence and I think most of my participants share my experience, like they left th- their homeland in their uh, late adolescence and early adulthood. That's the kind of the key period for their ident- uh, identity making as a queer and as an adult in China. I, I don't think that's a really good time to be queer in China. They have censorship about queer content um, on TV, on, on, on the screen. And also we have like really subtle censorship on social media as well. But there's no like clear um, 
discipline or lines about what you can say or not. And also, even though the um, homosexuality is not criminalized um, in China, they're still stigmatized um, mostly. But I will see, I will say the younger generation, they're trying to um, get more knowledge about queer uh, theory. <laughs> That's great. And also they have um, friends and communities established along them. So I would say it's probably getting better in somehow, but like the mm. um, the governance on queer content and um, queer people, it's not really good. Mm, I see. So what was it like, I mean, for you, are you fully out to your family right now or what's sort of your relationship back home? I'm fully out to my parents and uh, my mom is such a great supporter and I'm out, out with my partner so we have been together for more than three years now, almost four years. <laughs> well done, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. It, it, it's definitely a great part and an important part in my adulthood and try to figure out who I am um, and I, I'm really really grateful for my mom's support um, um, for who I am as well yeah wonderful and tell me a bit about um, the PhD that mm -hmm. you uh, the, the paper that you recently published about queer students international students and their experiences during the pandemic what were some of the key findings um, first of all, I would say that's really I'm I'm really really grateful for the opportunity to conduct a PhD during the pandemic. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic here, but that was really difficult. But mm. in my recent paper, I talk about their um, identity negotiation, majorly queer identity negotiation with their transnational families back home, um, and I focus on their communications on social media. And as you can probably tell, like because of the border closure and the travel bans, um, it's very hard for them to see each other face to face for two years. And they majorly relied on, uh, relied on in the internet, social media to stay connected with their families back home. I see. And what was sort of the impact of I guess, the the separation, because you talk a bit about the immobility of borders, but the mobility of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to elaborate a bit on what that means? Yeah, yeah. So because my participants were international students and um, they're kind of like majorly financially relied, dependent on their parents. And there was such a tricky time for, you know, Chinese to be, overseas as well because during the pandemic we are all often become became the uh, the target for racism and also stigmatized in our community and a lot of people feel unsafe during that time and they are they were experiencing such a high level of like um, anxiety and uncertainty about their study and life. So during that time, I would say people try to stay, like keep a very stable tie uh, with their families. So their their life would, you know, stay as stable as they can. And during that time, queer identity can be a really triggering point for them to disturb these kind of stable um, relationships because 
you don't know how your parents will react to you, your sexuality, your relationship. So um, they try their best to keep their queer life away from their family back home. And that's how I say they would try to post something like, oh, we, we have a great meal every day and try to keep their parents updated. Like, okay, we're living a healthy and safe life over here. So you don't need to worry about us. Mm. But... Uh, there's always a risk behind social media. It's like they can leak something as you're not expecting it. So some of my participants uh, experience leakage, which is like their parents found out their relationship or sexuality and identity via their social media posts. And they were outed by social media. And how they try to deal with this really unexpected incident mm. when they are staying away from their families. And that's the interesting part to bringing the pandemic's uh, immobility. They were not allowed to see each other and their families were not able to come and confront them in face to face. So somehow it creates a, you know, helpful in-between space for them to cope with their emotions, then about um, homosexuality, that's what I say, because that's kind of their families are, 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 are still considering it. Mm. Um, and also try to, you know, make a negotiation about the identity, both the kids and the family. I see. So this space and this time apart, mm. um, was that helpful for families to reconcile with their children's uh, homosexual identity? I think that's, that's um, a, you know, according to my participants' experiences, they are. So one of the participants, even I, I mentioned that in my paper, like um, she mentioned about, oh, thanks, like, thank you so much about the border closure. Otherwise, th- my parents will come and snatch me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was quite worried mm. after uh, the decade, the incident, because her parents were very traditional and, con- con- like, conservative. And she was worried about like the all the aftermath after that coming out. Even it's not coming out. I would say it's leakage because she didn't do that by, her, by own purpose. And um, and the other thing is like uh, because one of my participants, um, her partner is going through the gender affirming therapy, and she was quite worried about that because there can be, a, you know, information overloaded. Like her parents will definitely be overwhelmed by by so many things in her queer identity, her queer relationship, and everything around um, her partner. So she was planning to kind of, you know, pace herself and in the sh- information sharing process and get her parents ready for different information throughout the days. So now she's still ongoing <laughs> the process, mm-hmm. but she felt like because they, they couldn't, like the parents couldn't come and, you know, face everything and check the fact she was able to control how much information she would like to share with her parents after the leakage. Wow. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like navigating a, a pandemic and lockdowns is hard enough, but when you're juggling that on top of it, yeah. I mean, that would have been a lot. Definitely, definitely. But I think it provides us a really new and um, different angle to see through the pandemic. I'm not like saying we are minimizing the difficulties and Mm. all the sufferings international students were going through. And I think they're still going through um, the challenges the pandemic brought us. But it's more like how we can queer the 
the impact of uh, the pandemic and also social media and mm. think about what's the possibilities and impossibilities they can bring us um, as as queer young people, as queer international students. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like um, with queer international students, is there a lot of mode switching as in you have one facade when you're here in Australia and then perhaps a different facade when you're back home or communicating with family? Yes, uh, I think one of my participants mentioned a work called Double Life. I think they are really trying hard to manage different aspects of their life. Some of them were already all out, like during our interviews, and they had different challenges, like about um, how to deal with the the, the backlash, <laughs> and also how to nego- continue negotiating um, their identity with family. Some of them were uh, still in the closet, so they try to seal and plan what's the the coming so-called coming out coming out plan with their family and also how to stay in the closet but still be themselves overseas. So it's always like negotiation and trying to find the balance and try to find the protection for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> it must be overwhelming. Um but as you said, at least there was some good um in between space and mm-hmm. that term um identity negotiation as well. That's something that came about through your research. Mm. What does that phrase mean? I think people have different definition of negotiation. And for me, I think I define that what as a as an ongoing process, you try to weigh different values, different system of values, different identity, because like as, as uh, we, are, we are Chinese, we are female, we are uh, queer, we're international students, we have like different like different identities within our life and it's how we have to face the reality like we have to negotiate among them and mm. try to find our position in society also position for ourselves how can we deal with ourselves and deal with people who love us and we love so that's somehow a really <laughs> complicated thing to do every day <laughs> Of course, yeah. And moving uh, aside now from like biological mm-hmm. families, have you found that uh, the the local or the domestic um, students or just the queer community uh, who are born in Australia, mm. um, have they been welcoming from your research or from what you've been hearing of international students who are queer? I think for myself, personally speaking, I always feel really welcomed in the local community, but it's not easy for everyone. I think Mm. it can be really, really challenging for international students who have a lot of barriers in culture, in language, and in, I think that maybe some of them were still going through a, a exploration process for themselves, so they don't, they might not feel comfortable to communicate about that. And so there are so many barriers for them to kind of step into the local community and make friends. And sometimes I just feel like it's, it's, it's not that easy to say like, oh, you should, when you're here, you should, you know, go check on your university's um, rainbow network or mm. you should you should make more queer friends here. They, they're still really, really hard. Imagine you're going to like a somewhere you don't know and you're going to a queer bar there. You still feel like, uh, I'm not really sure if I can go. Will people look at me or stare at me? Am I welcome? They have so much un- insecurity. And we should definitely understand and encourage them to feel comfortable. And But that was not easy. Mm, 
for sure. And I know you're a researcher, not you know a social <laughs> activist or in that space. But I guess if you had to list some things that you would like to see more of from um, local queer communities or even just um, at the university to make international queer students feel more welcome, uh, mm. what would they be? Um, I would say maybe um, try to... Before that, I would like to mention that there are some like communities and organizations in Australia who are like really like ethnic group. Um, they are really welcoming to international for international students, and I think they are really trying to make a progress there to to make um, the international students and also like new migrants like feel comfortable mm. in Australia. But for um, universities, ones I think there are some people are trying to um, like. Um, introduce it in different languages and maybe bring that to social media pages so so people will know about the events happening but the how they spread that information and how they kind of you know um, try to let them know there's the I think I, I was in my third year or second year to know there's a queer department in my uni and <laughs> That was a little bit too late. I would say I would be happy if I can I could know that earlier. Mm. So it's how the information got spread to uh, reach the international students and how you feel you make them feel comfortable to engage. That would be the tricky part. Mm. Mm. Communication. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's definitely the key. Mm. So how much? Um, oh, I guess my next question should be: What's sort of next for you in your academic journey? Mm. So I'll definitely, um, after my the completion of my PhD, I hope to kind of co-launch, maybe I will find some great co-authors in this area as well, and to uh, develop some researchers still on uh, focusing on marginalized groups like migrants and, and women, and also maybe some of the international students, but also I think I would like to follow their journey as the migrants as well, who um, maybe finish their education and try to stay and migrate to Australia later. Of course, it's such uh, important work you're doing. So thank you for coming in and, and sharing. If you had to take one thing away from this uh, particular research we've been talking about today about queer international students mm. during the pandemic, what would it be? I would say our voices matter, our experiences matter. So please listen to us and support us. We are also part of the community in Australia. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Hal, for thank coming you. in today. It's My been pleasure. a real pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was PhD student Hao Zheng speaking on her latest paper of the queer international students during lockdown and finding community in arm. Many thanks to Jacob for this wonderful piece from Curing the Air. If you want to listen more from them, tune in to 3CR every Sunday from 3pm to 4pm. And that was a great segment from Grace and Jacob. We're going to hop to our... Final segment for this morning, we're going to be speaking with Edda Gunaydin, a second-generation Turkish-Australian essayist and researcher whose writing explores class, capital, intergenerational trauma and diaspora. Her work has appeared in the Sydney Review of Books, Mianjin, The Lifted Brow and others. Edda's book, Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance, is the winner of the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for Non-Fiction 
and we're so happy that she's joining us now. Welcome, Edda. Hi, good morning. So lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the devastation of the recent earthquake disaster and in Turkey and Syria and express my sincere sympathy for the loss and suffering of the communities on the ground and and those abroad. May I ask you how it's been for you and the people that you connect with in the Australian-Turkish diaspora? Um, yes, yes. Thank, thanks for starting that. It is kind of hard to even be able to speak about anything else, including, you know, something that is ostensibly positive news that has been, you know, impacting my personal life while everything else roils around us in the community. Um, and I have appreciated that, you know, everyone is so alive to this disaster, maybe because Australia itself has also been beset by so many natural disasters. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, it's it's just like any other kind of tragedy or crisis, it's kind of hard to speak about it uh, in a way that makes sense or to make sense of it while you're still in it. I mean, there was a, another earthquake just yesterday. Another one is anticipated in Istanbul, which is a much more densely populated area and the death toll just keeps rising and I'm sure we all know about the fact that it's very hard to get aid into that area as well so just a lot of grief um, but also a sense I think from what I've heard of you know not just me but other members of the Turkish community a sense of alienation it's so hard being away at the moment. Mm, I can't imagine um, yeah how it feels um we're just observers, many of us, and, yeah, it's quite catastrophic. Um, I believe you're organising some fundraising events? Yeah, um, myself and a few other um, writers who are based in Sydney, so I'll just speak about it quite briefly because I know this may not pertain necessarily to any Melbourne listeners, but we will have... Um, we're organising, in fact, a writer named Sheila Sam and a Turkish-Australian writer named Daniel Zada are organising a Sydney-based fundraiser on April 1st. For anyone who may know of Western Sydney, it's in Parramatta in the evening at the Arts and Cultural Exchange. But um, if you were to head to my Twitter for any folks who are kind of finding themselves at a loss for what to do and wondering which organisations may be able to actually get aid onto the ground because, as I said, there are a lot of blockages at the moment. I'd say the two best organisations to consider are one called ARBAP, A-H-B-A-P, um, and also the Kurdish Red Crescent are really good ones to donate to and it seems like they're able to actually get aid into the area at the moment. Fantastic. Thanks very much for sharing those details. Um, it's really important to make sure that donations get to the right destination. So on a positive note, congratulations on winning the non-fiction prize at the Victorian Premier's Literature Awards. Thank you. Your book is called Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance. What are these essays about? Um, yeah, so this is a collection of essays that I suppose engages with one kind of central inquiry or question that kind of forms the through line of the book, which I guess would be something along the lines of how do we be here? <laughs> and we include people like myself who are second-generation migrants and find themselves in this kind of tricky position of 
negotiating, you know, being in, you know, I was born in, in Western Sydney on Darug land, and that comes with its own set of inheritances around settler colonialism, that being that this country is not quite our own, but nor is our kind of quote-unquote motherland. <laughs> and it's hard to feel that same level, as I just said, of identification with the country, you know, that we've been to maybe only a few times, but it's still so alive in our kind of cultural life. Um, and, you know, and asking how do we be here, I suppose I'm engaging with the fact that migration is kind of a trauma that dislocates you and displaces you both from home, but also sometimes from your own body. And so I guess when I also ask that question, how do we find a way to be here? I'm also thinking about trauma writ more broadly. Um, you know, trauma itself is also something that <laughs> takes you away from your body and stops you from feeling at home. So I guess I kind of wanted to come up with an answer to that question that isn't uh, mired in the kind of like deficit thinking that I see around how we talk about um, living in diaspora sometimes. It's a lot of I'm only half a person or I'm kind of stuck between two places. And I wanted to kind of maybe pose a more like reparative <laughs> reading of what it means to live in diaspora that actually engages with the way that life can be quite whole and full and how those inheritances um, can also lead to responsibilities, you know, for how to actually live ethically on this land. Yeah, we'll come back to some of those um, specifics a bit later um, in our chat, but I also wanted to ask you about the style of writing. Um, the essays are largely um, very personal. In fact, mm -hmm. some of them read like memoir. Can you tell us a bit about your approach and um, how you decide the form of which you know you're going to use for these essays? Um, yeah, you're very right. I think that I, in a lot of ways, started out writing straight memoir. In fact, in the book, I talk about an abandoned book project of mine that was a memoir that was kind of pretty engaged with my personal narrative and, you know, started at X age and ended at X age and told everything in chronological order and was kind of pretty, you know, narrative oriented. And I found myself kind of butting up against all the ways in which I could not tell that story, um, you know, because of privacy and other reasons. And so for that reason, I guess I found myself attracted to the form of the essay instead, which allows for, I think, a little bit of a more zoomed out perspective on things, although I kind of relate personal anecdotes and the writing is super personal. I do also think that it's often in the name of, for me, a broader purpose around cultural criticism. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of try to link things that have happened in my life to literary theory or engagement with the effects of capitalism or intergenerational trauma. So to me, it feels like a, a form that I really like because it helps me get at questions of politics in a way that is still kind of interesting. Well, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, it does make for really um, engaging reading. You've also used particular devices uh, like the way you describe the material world of the working class is, is very prevalent in your writing. Can you tell us a bit about what you're particularly wanting to illuminate through that choice mm -hmm. of detail? Yeah, um... I think that 
Well, uh, we're increasingly having a lot more conversations about class as this kind of sometimes erased axis of oppression in, oh, you know, many spheres of life, but also in Australian literature. Of course, we have many fantastic working class writers, um, but I think that, you know, the facts are that um, one tends to need to like one tends to require some kind of material ability to write. And so I think that usually makes for a somewhat um, insular kind of literary community. Um, and of course, again, as I said, there are many writers who are able to write against the fact that <laughs> uh, we usually can't often make a living. But I think that having grown up, you know, in a community, not just the Turkish community, but in the Western suburbs, which kind of has its own particular demographic profile. It was, uh, I think that one of the biggest things that has impacted my life is the experience of kind of moving between classes. I come from a kind of, you know, working class background in which my parents um, weren't able to go beyond the high school education and lived in, you know, very significant levels of poverty. Um, and now I myself, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty classic story of migration um, where I was able to access an education and um, um, the sec- uh, tertiary education and now kind of have a have an earning potential that is much more significant than my family. So I think that, you know, I think we sometimes underestimate or don't talk enough about the impact that one's class has upon their lives. Maybe because we'd like to think we live in a kind of (laughs) post-class society, but unfortunately we don't. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on um, those experiences of being first in the family to go to university. You're now Mm -hmm. completing a PhD in international relations, I believe. So what, what was it like for you going off to university without that being something in the set of experiences your family had? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, because, you know, precisely because I grew up in an environment, and again, I'm sure this applies to a lot of second-gen migrants and other people, I grew up in an environment where education was extremely highly valued and what was, you know, the kind of one of the bigger tragedies of my parents uh, lives and many other working class peoples is that they would have flourished if they had been able to access an education. Um, but it was just for purely financial reasons that they could not, um, and, you know, as well as reasons of gender and many other things. So I think that I grew up in an environment where we always knew that what would be the best for me and would unlock the most doors would be able would be being able to go to university. Um, and that kind of has been the case, you know, I think that was extremely intellectually fulfilling and reading and writing and learning have often been the things that have sustained me, um, you know, where almost nothing else has. So I'm extremely grateful to have been able to, um, so I, yeah, I did my undergraduate and my postgrad schooling at the University of Sydney and that was extremely eye-opening because, yeah, the, you know, the UC kind of has very similar um, student makeup that is very similar to Oxbridge in the Ivy League. So I did, I think, sometimes feel like a bit of a fish out of water. A number of universities have first in the family programs to support people um, like yourself. Were you one of part of one of those programs or did you receive support from the university yeah. in terms of adjusting and, you know, being mentored or anything else you might have Mm. needed? 
Yeah, well, so uh, I was able to go to the university, you know, apart from the fact that we have kind of pretty generous kind of help and hex systems that allow for more people to access um, universities. Now I also received a, a scholarship at the University of Sydney that was on the basis not just of merit, but also um, for students with a low SDS background. And, you know, that was over 10 years ago now, and I have seen that those programs are really proliferating and there are more than ever before. So less the, I'd say less the recipient and more a kind of participant. I did make I did try to ensure that I got involved in widening participation programs as a volunteer at the University of Sydney. Um, and now that I'm a lecturer at the University of Wollongong, as well, I've tried to be engaged with these kinds of widening participation programs that often run, for example, kind of workshop days or campus tours for high school students, um, as well as providing mentoring to first and family students is another program at the University of Sydney that I was involved in. So things, yeah. Things are definitely changing and improving, I think, all the time. That's very good to hear. You often hear the phrase living in two worlds used in terms of cultural or racial identity and experience. But when you talk about this um, shift that you've been able to make to become educated and gain a, a, you know, a foothold into uh, an income stream, mm. I wondered how you feel about the idea of living in two worlds when it comes to economic wealth and social privilege and whether that's something you personally identify with or whether you find it, it challenging to sort of occupy a more comfortable mm. place in the world while still identifying so strongly with the working class? Yeah, I think that's a really good question that gets at the heart of a lot of the concerns about class that I discussed in the book. You know, class mobility is a reality and it's not one that should be denied. Uh, you know, it would it would no longer be accurate for me to say that I am working class because I'm simply not, not just in terms of income, but also earning potential and capacity. Um, and, you know, all those other kind of re really material factors such as health and lifespan and access to health care and et cetera, et cetera, a lot of which is, you know, determined geographically in this country. Uh, it would no longer be accurate to say that I am working class, um, which, you know, is a net positive, of course. But on the other hand, as you said, it can lead to a little bit of a sense that one is kind of pulled up and away from their roots, I guess, which is why, you know, the book is titled that. But I guess I've resolved for myself that I think maybe we make a little bit too much about what that dislocation might mean. I think you can still remain really embedded in your community and share the same goals and values <laughs> as long as you remain committed to... Um, you know, I guess for me personally, I'd say that my commitment would be to abolishing class. <laughs> if we abolish class, then we wouldn't need to talk about mm. classism and the plight of the working class anymore. Everyone would just kind of have an adequate standard of living. So I think that as long as we share goals and share some kind of political horizon um, and do things about it, um, we can kind of transmute that guilt maybe that we feel about class <laughs> and actually use it for good. Yeah, it's a big topic in itself, um, but it sounds like you've come to a place of somewhat being resolved on that, which um, yeah. is a great thing to hear given you set out to write a book to to settle some of those tensions. 
Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Congratulations again. And we will put your details uh, of your Twitter address on the website so uh, listeners can pick up those uh, donation sites for the earthquake disaster. Thanks very much. Thank that, you so much. That was Edda Gunaidin, author of Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance, published by New South Publishing. We're going to have to wrap up the show today. It's been a very busy one. Thank you to all our guests. And we'll be back next week. We'll have Grace with us back uh, from Malaysia next week. And now it's time for Stick Together. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.